Well, welcome, everybody. Good to see you guys here this weekend at Grace. There's some folks looking for seats, so <clears throat> maybe raise your hand and make sure there's some room there. It's a great time to remind you about Saturday night services, 5 and 645, and also the Montrose building, which is at 930 and 1115. I was talking to some people last night who shifted from Sunday morning to Saturday night, and miracles happened in their lives. His hair grew back, he lost weight, and his Chevy became a Ford. God did incredible things. So all that will happen for you, not at all, but you will, uh, there are seats there if you want to be there. So we're in a series we're actually finishing up this weekend uh, called Beginner's Guide to Hating Your Life, and uh, we've been kind of wrestling with this question since the beginning of the year. What does it actually mean to be a follower of Christ or a disciple or a learner of Christ or even a Christian, right? And so we said, if you kind of put that question out on the internet so the whole world could interact with it, uh, probably a few ways that people would respond to that. One would certainly be like it's a team that I'm on, like I'm not a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim, I'm a Christian. Uh, another way that would be a big one is it's a tradition I was raised in, so we we celebrate Christmas and Easter instead of Hanukkah kind of a thing. And then for a lot of folks, maybe a predominant one, it's behavioral based. And so I'm a Christian because I, I quit doing these things and I started doing these things and I changed my behavior. And not all of that is bad and not even like unauthentic, un, uh, uh, inauthentic, but the question just is, is that what Jesus meant? And is that what, what Jesus calls us to? So we've been looking at his words, trying to understand what he actually says it means to be a disciple or his follower. We've camped here in Luke chapter 14, Jesus's words, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even their own lives, such a person cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Jesus brings kind of like really strong clarity to this question. And what he's saying kind of as a synopsis is this. He's saying, listen, if there's any other relationships, father, mother, sister, brother, children, even yourself, if there's anybody in the first place of affection in your life other than me, anybody in the first place of authority in your life other than me, first place of governance of your life other than me, then you cannot be my disciple. Because disciples, when they sign up, so to say, to be my disciple, that's what they're signing up for. They're choosing to put me in first place in all those, those positions in their life. And so I've been using the illustration of my friend who joined the army here a few weeks ago. And uh, we talked and he had thought through it prayed through it, researched it, understood his path, weighed his options, and then he enlisted, right? He enlisted, and so now he is in the United States Army. He's property of the United States government. That's who he is. He knew that ahead of time. He considered the cost before he made the decision. Jesus, in this passage, is saying that. He's like, just before you call yourself a disciple, let's be clear what a disciple is, right? A disciple is one 
who puts me in the first place of affection, authority, and governance. The disciple is one who embraces the ramifications of following me, picks up their cross. A disciple is one who brings everything to the table. They don't isolate parts of their life. They bring all of their life to the table. That's what a disciple does. And if you're talking about that, that's discipleship. If you're talking about something else, that's not what a disciple is. So he clarifies that. So we've been talking about that here for the last few weeks. And there's a whole bunch of nuances, a lot of detail in there in our conversations. Encourage you if you've missed it or want to catch up or even revisit the podcast, the website, the app, all that's always free at Grace. And it's probably worth a listen uh, to go through uh, what Jesus has been talking about and to download that in depth and then kind of weigh your definition against his definition of what it means to be a disciple. So we're going to pick up again where we left off with Jesus in Luke chapter 14. If you have a Bible, you can open yours there if you want. Luke chapter 14, if you want to use a paper copy in the chairs, it's page uh, 848, and then this is on the app. And so let me just set, set the, the setting here a little bit. If, if, uh, if, if you're catching up to speed, Jesus here in Luke 14 is at a lunch, all right? And so there's a lunch that was thrown by these guys called the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Those guys would have been the religious elite of their day. So they would have been the the Pope and the bishops and the pastors and the guys who were supposed to understand God and be leading other people toward the heart and the mind of God. They didn't like Jesus that much. And so they threw this lunch on the Sabbath in order to trick Jesus, invited this guy, see what Jesus was going to do. Jesus healed him, embraced him. They were all honked off about that. Jesus looked and said, listen, if you love the guy the way you're supposed to love the guy, you would have done what I did. And they were just kind of quiet because he kind of pointed out their hypocrisy. At this lunch, this is an honor-based culture. And so the, the most important people sit up front and the least important people sit in the back, we said it's kind of like the Golden Globes, Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, way back there, it's like Billy Ray Cyrus kind of a thing, right? And so they wanted to be closer, they're kind of throwing elbows to be seen, to be known. Jesus says, hey, you know what? Uh, my disciples actually humble themselves, they don't exalt themselves, just for clarity. And then last weekend, we were looking at this idea that they wanted to kind of be seen with the players. We just called them the popular kids. And Jesus is like, actually, my disciples see the invisible people. That's what I did. Uh, You were invisible. You weren't concerned about your spiritual condition. Neither was anybody else. But I humbled myself and I came to love you and I want my disciples to love each other that way. And so they invite the invisible people into their lives. We actually looked kind of strongly at uh, verse 12 of chapter 14 of Luke last week. Same dinner. We've been talking about it for a while, but it's all the same lunch Jesus was at. In verse 12, he says this to the host. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors If you do, they may invite you back, and so you've been repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and blind, 
and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And we talked about that last week. We're going to pick up here on verse 15. So Jesus says that to the host. And as he says that to the host, one of the other people at the banquet overhears it and responds to it. And he says in verse 15, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent the servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everyone is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. So another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to the master, and when the owner of the house heard this, he became angry and ordered his servant Go quickly to the streets and the alleys of the town and bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servants, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who was invited will taste of my banquet, right? So just catch it. The guy is at the table, overhears Jesus. Remember, this would have been a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, or at a very minimum, somebody like highly educated in religious stuff or the Old Testament stuff, what we would call the Old Testament kind of Bible knowledge. The guy overhears Jesus talking about, hey, invite the invisible, when he says, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now, the very fact that that guy said that tells us that he knows something about what we would now call the Bible, right? He knows that, that there's something that's going to happen in the future, that when the true followers of God are in heaven with God, there's going to be a feast there. That's all rooted in the Old Testament And then I believe defined by what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb in the New Testament. So this guy knows enough about the Bible, so to say, that he can do that math. And he's positioning himself in such a way that he's saying to Jesus, yeah, you know, Jesus, like me, people like me are blessed, you know, because I'm part of the religious elite. I know the Bible. I've been educated. I I am and grew up in this whole thing. So when guys like me, when we go and eat at the feast in heaven, we're going to be blessed if we do that, right? Now, Jesus hears that, knows the guy's heart and mind. That's always kind of like the downside of having lunch with Jesus. You can't pull anything over on him. And so he knows his heart and mind. And what he does is he responds to what he said with a, like a mini little parable, And a parable is a a story that Jesus would make up in order to teach a spiritual truth. And so he creates this parable and he's answering kind of this guy's presumption that he's going to be at that feast. And he says this, Jesus says, "Um, what about this? A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent a servant to tell those who had been invited Come, for everything is now ready. 
And so I want to dig at this for a second, but we have to step back into the ancient world to get our head around what this guy was hearing when Jesus made this parable. So Jesus starts the parable and he says this, he says, the certain man or the master of the banquet, later on he's called, certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited guests. So in the ancient world, if you were preparing a great banquet, that was a very big deal, right? A very big deal. Probably the closest we could get to something like this would be like a wedding reception, a graduation party, a retirement party kind of a thing. But in the ancient world, it was different because you couldn't just call the caterer, right? So you didn't just like order a bunch of pizzas from Domino's because, well, frankly, anybody who loves anybody wouldn't do that. But like, you just, you know, you just wouldn't, it wasn't easy to get food. So if you were going to throw a banquet, and that banquet was going to be for a village, which is what it would have been in the ancient world. So you got a bunch of people. For you to throw the banquet, first of all, is an act of love. So you're not charging for the banquet. Uh, it, you're, this is not a, like, hey, you guys worked really hard for me. Let's have a Christmas party. This is a, this is a gift from somebody to a bunch of people. Now, in the ancient world, if I'm going to feed a bunch of people at a banquet, there's a lot of cost and a lot of orchestration involved in that. Because, it, it, like today, if you're going to a wedding reception, they're like, you want chicken or beef, right? And you just check the box. In the ancient world, if you're like, I want beef, they're like, okay, let's have a cow and start growing it <laughs> and take care of it. And many months later, we'll butcher it and we'll serve beef, right? Everything's a process. If, if your wife is helping you plan the menu and she's like, we should have carrots at the banquet, you would be like, right, let's plant carrots. And when they're mature, we'll have them for the banquet. If you're going to make bread, the, the grain has to be grown and it has to be harvested and the wheat has to be separated from the chaff and it has to be ground and then it has to be baked, see? Everything is a process and a long process. So when this guy is throwing a great banquet, this is a big shindig, a nanny. When this is happening, there's a lot of food, a lot of orchestration, a lot of cost, a lot of sacrifice for this to happen, and he invited many guests. So this invite is an RSVP, right? So this wasn't, hey, what are you guys doing for the Super Bowl tonight? Do you want to come over? It's not like our world. This is a, something that has to be planned and mapped out. Hey, I'm going to have a banquet on the third Tuesday after harvest, do you want to come? And we're going to prepare the meat and we're going to butcher it and we're going to grow the stuff and we're going to grind the flour. And it's a, it's a very big process to throw a great banquet. So when you invite many guests, what these guests are going to do is they're going to RSVP. They're going to, this is their world now, they're going to recognize how complicated it is for you to throw a banquet. They're going to recognize what an act of love, because 
In the ancient world, food could be very scarce. So to share food is an act of love. So they're going to recognize that act of love. They're going to recognize the orchestration. You didn't, you didn't stop at Drug Mart on your way home and get something. Like you, you had to pre-plan and work and cause us to land at a certain place. So when you were invited and you checked, yes, count me in on the RSVP, I'll be there the third Tuesday after harvest. You were recognizing the depth of love, the depth of commitment, the depth of cost, the depth of orchestration that it takes to invite you to this banquet. Okay? So a guy did that and invited people to the banquet in Jesus' parable. And the time of the banquet arrived. And when the time of the banquet arrived, he sent his servant out to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. So it's the third Tuesday. We've been cooking for two or three days. Go tell everybody, it's Tuesday morning. Go tell everybody, food's on. It's on the table. It's hot. It's steaming. It's ready to roll. And they are SVP'd, and so they've known about this for weeks or months. Just ring the dinner bell and tell them that the banquet is prepared. Okay. So the servant goes, and he goes to the people who are SVP'd, and this is what he runs into in the parable. But they all alike began to make excuses. Jesus is real clear about this. They all alike began to make excuses. This isn't something happened. Yeah, man, we were on our way and we blew a tire on the donkey and we couldn't make it, and, right? They begin to make excuses to not honor the RSVP or the work or the intention or the sacrifice of the host of the banquet, right? The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Hey, food's on. Ah, oh, oh, sorry, bro, man. I just bought a field and I got to go see it right now. Because you know fields, you never know when they're just going to run away. So I got to go see the field right now, right? Now, in the ancient world, this guy was probably just lying, right? Because in the ancient world, you would never, ever buy a field without seeing it. In the ancient world, a field is the most valuable thing you owned. And this is an agrarian culture. So the, these are ancient people. They're not, they're not unintelligent people. They're just ancient people. And so they knew about fields. And if you're going to buy a field, you were going to go to that field. You were going to consider it. It's usually the way the Bible says it. You're going to look at its soil. Is it clay? Is it sand? Is it rich topsoil? You're going to look at its water source. Am I going to be able to air, uh, irrigate this field and get water to it? You're going to look at the way the sun rises and sets along the hills. And it's going to define for you what you can plant in the field. Is it bright all day? Can I plant dates? Can I plant citrus? Does it balance out? So can I plant wheat or barley so it doesn't burn up? You're going to take time and energy before you make the biggest financial investment that you're going to make in the ancient world. 
probably the thing that's closest for us in our world, for most of us, is our houses. We're not going to buy a house and then say, I'm going to go look at it, right? We're going to have it inspected. Is there termites? Is there radon? Is the roof any good? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because we're going to look and say, man, if I buy that, I'm kind of like sinking everything I got into that house. It needs to come through for me. When the servant comes and says, hey, food's on, um, I, uh, I got to uh, go look at my field. I just bought it. <laughs> and he's looking at the master of the banquet who sacrificed, who prepared in an act of love and saying, I just really don't want to come to your banquet. Because I got to go right now, right at the moment that the food's ready, I got to go look at my field. The servant goes on, he goes to the second guy, another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. This is a blow-off answer as well, right? In the ancient world, you didn't buy five yoke of oxen and then try it out. In the ancient world, oxen was their most valuable tool that you would work your field with, right? This is, this is the John Deere tractor of its day. And in the ancient world, you would go to a cattle lot. We still kind of do this today if you've ever been to a cattle auction. But you go to a cattle lot, you would find your oxen, and then a yoke of oxen is two oxen yoked together. So you actually bought 10 oxen, five teams. And the bigger cattle lots, you would pick out your oxen, you would yoke them, and then there was like a test field beside it. Because before you took your oxen home, you had to make sure they worked well together. You might have a really, really smart oxen and then like one from Michigan. And you can't work, right? And so they would, the farmers would literally like test plow with the oxen. And if this one didn't get along with this one, they would swap it out and you would build your yoke that way. There's no way that you would buy five yokes, five combines, five tractors. No way that you would buy five yokes of oxen and then have to drive them today. See? Dinner's ready. Oh man, I gotta like go drive my oxen right now. You, you can't do it after the banquet? No, this, this very instance, at this moment, I have to drive my oxen. It's a ludicrous answer. And this person is spurring, he's ignoring, he's devaluing the banquet and the work and the cost and the sacrifice and the orchestration and the offering of the banquet. Third guy, servant goes to the third guy. So another said, I just got married so I can't come. I would come, but my wife won't let me. Right? See? That's as ancient as time. Blame the wife. That started in the garden and hasn't stopped. Right? So, so he, he's looking, he's like, yeah, oh, I just got married. This, this again, in the ancient world, it's a ludicrous answer. In the ancient world... Aside from a great banquet, 
maybe the only thing that would be on par or maybe a little above that would be a wedding feast. The whole village would come. It'd be a week-long celebration. You would never schedule it on top of each other. This guy doesn't have an obligation. He's blaming, I, you know, I just got married, so... Well, food's on. I mean, it's ready. Remember you RSVP'd second, third Tuesday after the harvest? Yeah, well, you know, I got a, I got like a soccer tournament. I'm in like in college now. Like the lake house has to get open. I just have to right now. I can't tomorrow. I didn't yesterday. I can't wait a weekend. I, I have to skip the banquet. And the master of the banquet, who sent out the servant, who was giving something as an act of love and generosity that he had worked for, that he had prepared for, that he had sacrificed for, that he had spent money on, and that he had orchestrated, was hurt and frustrated and offended by the excuses that were offered him. Verse 21, chapter 14, Luke. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servants, go out quickly, because the food's on. The milk's on the table. It, this is the ancient world. You don't throw this in the commercial fridges. So go out quickly, because it's ready now, into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. And then, I think one of the scariest verses in the whole Bible, the master says this, I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Everybody who RSVP'd, who knew, you, you know the master, it's a village. You know the cost, it's been explained. You know the orchestration, you're in the culture, you know what it takes to make a great banquet. You know the planning, you knew the date. You were expecting the invitation, you RSVP'd, and you blew me off, you won't be back. Not one will ever taste of my banquet. The greatest honor that the host could bestow on those he cared for was to invite them to the banquet he prepared for them. And they accepted. And when it was time to come to dinner, they just had better stuff to do. I, I'm so busy, man. Busy. That stuff. And it's got to be done right now. Can't wait. Can't be delayed. 
I have to act at this very moment. And they were invited, and they ignored, and they walked away. They prioritized themselves. I gotta, I gotta go see my field, man. They laid down their cross. Oh, I, oh, I had the test drive plan. And they hoarded their lives. Oh, I just, you know, me and my wife are gonna do something. All making a statement about how they valued the master and the invitation that he gave. I wrote in my notes, the authenticity of our appreciation of the master of the banquet will show itself in our availability to act on his invitation. The authenticity of our appreciation of the master of the banquet will show itself in our availability to act on his invitation. And Jesus, don't forget the context, who is talking to a man who is steeped in religion, who is very good at behavior, and who was raised in a tradition and assumes he's going to be at the righteous feast in heaven. Jesus is talking to that man, giving a parable, and saying to him, yeah, everything you know and were raised in tells you that the master prepared you a banquet. Everything that you understand and were grounded in lets you know the cost of the master's banquet. Everything that, that you memorized helps you to know the orchestration of the master's banquet. And now the invitation's here. I'm here, Jesus. And the excuses, and the excuses, and the excuses. Right? And the very next thing that Jesus says, the very next thing he says is this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. You cannot know the master, know the cost, know the plan, know the, orga the orchestration, receive the RSVP, check the box, and fail to come to the banquet and think of yourself as my disciple. My disciples don't do that. It would be against the nature of their discipleship. My disciples anticipate the banquet. Can't wait for the dinner bell to ring. My disciples 
place me first in affection. They're way more in love with me and their time with me and being with me than they are their new field. My disciples pick up their cross and follow me. They would put me in the first place of authority. I got pressing stuff, I'm busy, and I need to test drive those oxen, but the dinner bell rang. My disciples put me in first place of governance, see? I live in a subculture, and she's really pressuring me not to go to the banquet, but honey, I'm going to lead you to the master's table. So if anybody comes after me, and that's not the story of their life, well, they can't be my disciple. It's illogical. Because that's not what my disciples would do. And what Jesus is doing here, at the end of this conversation, of this luncheon that he's been at, he's not kicking people out of heaven. He's not like, oh, you thought you were in? No, you're not. <laughs> you know, he's not, he's not doing that at all. He's clarifying what it means to get there. He's not whittling people down. He's really taking the question and he's handing it back to them. And he's saying, well, what do you think? If this is what my disciples are, would you consider yourself my disciple? Would you define it this way? When you think about following me, is this what you're thinking about? Because this is what my disciples do. This is how they think. This is how they act. This is how they position themselves. This is how they love. This is what motivates them. Is that you? If Jesus was here this weekend, he would ask a question like that. He would look at us and he would say, listen, if your life's actions don't match your claims of discipleship, and you accepted the RSVP, but you never come to the table, don't you think you should double click on that? Because there's very little consistent with your thought process that's consistent with mine. See. Jesus isn't making a threat. And he's not setting down a rule. He's giving people a chance to be honest and to honestly evaluate themselves. So you and I would take a question like this and, and we, would, we would run our life through the grid. And I would ask myself questions like this. Are there things in my life that I'm prioritizing over Christ? Now, I want you to hear me. I didn't say things in your life that you're prioritizing over church. I said Christ, because Jesus isn't being legalistic here. Right? We've got to remember who he's talking to. He's talking to some of the most legalistic people who have ever existed. 
the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They're way better at church stuff than you and I are. The, the average person in North America who considers himself committed to a church comes to church one out of every six weekends. Grace is better. The average person here comes one out of every five weekends. Congratulations. The Pharisees went every week and twice on Saturday. They never missed. The average North American Christian ties less than 3% of their income. Grace is a little bit higher. The Pharisee tithed 10 and did it publicly so everybody knew it. They were way better givers than you guys are. The average North American Christian who follows Christ has never and never will read the Bible cover to cover. The Pharisees memorized the first four books of it. They were way better at that than we are. But Jesus is looking at them and saying, you're on the wrong track. See, this is not legalism. He's not looking at us and saying, you get to church more and put money in the plate and get a haircut for good night. He's not looking and saying, follow these rules. He's not pressing into behavior. He's pressing into passions. And so he wouldn't look and say, show me your attendance card. Show it to me. Because they would have perfect attendance. They're that kid. There's always that one kid that gets a perfect attendance award. And the rest of us are like, why? <laughs> right? They would have got perfect attendance. And Jesus, that's not what he's asking. But he would maybe say this. Do you accept my RSVP? Yeah. You're a disciple? Yeah. How come you're never with your family? Oh, I'm there all the time. You're there less than once a month. I mean, shouldn't you think about that a little bit? Well, Christ is number one in my life. Well, the church is the bride of Christ. I mean, that's the math he's doing. You live for Jesus, right? Oh, yeah, 100%. I'm all in. Everything. Does your checkbook say that? Because Jesus, I specifically linked your heart and your money. I mean, well been a rough month. I mean, Christmas, the Super Bowl, vacation. Yeah, I just, like, I'm not being legalistic, but shouldn't there be, like, something there? He'd ask questions like that. You believe you're fully forgiven, right? Yeah. Like, Christ loves you, forgives you completely. You, you believe that about me, right? Right. And you, you haven't talked to your dad for well, he's a jerk. I, I know, but, well, he started it. Yeah, remember the humble yourself? See, Jesus isn't going to press into the rules. He's not, these guys were killer rule keepers. It's not what he's concerned with. He's going to look, he said, wait, he's going to, wait a minute. If you've given me your heart and you're yielding it to me, and you said you wanted me to transform it, how come 
that's not happening. It's not lack of me. So I'm going to ask questions about that in my life, right? I'm going to ask questions about like the can't miss stuff because we all have can't miss stuff in our lives. I'm going to ask questions like, why is that a can't miss thing? We can, listen, get in the car. Get in the car. Daddy, get in the car. Why? Because the coach said to be there at three, and we're going to go enjoy ourselves as soccer. I hate soccer. You're not my son. Right? Can't miss it. If the coach says it, can't miss it. Can't miss it. Cannot miss it, the tournament. Cannot miss the grades. Cannot miss school. And Jesus might look and say, you know, that's fine. Like, discipline. You don't have to go to church every weekend. You can go to a soccer tournament if you want once in a while. Not the end of the world. Um, how come you're so committed to their athletics and their academics and not their discipleship? Well, I am. You take them to soccer practice once out of every six days? Doesn't make sense. I mean, I just want you to think about it. Can't miss the payment to the retirement. Can't miss the payment for the boat. Can't miss the money set aside for the, for the vacation. But you, you, you take money from me, you don't really think about it. I mean, is that, is that reflect first place stuff? So Jesus would lean into that stuff. You know, Jesus is, is uh, he defines me, he directs me. Okay, I want to define and direct your sexual identity. Whoa, that's me. Now, that's different. Well, but everything, but not that thing. I wanted to find and direct your future. Well, I feel called to ministry, but my dad says you can't make any money at it. Well, I, I thought I was, and think it was your those are the kind of things that Jesus was leaning into here. Because these guys nailed the rules, man. They had it. They lived by it. They didn't alter from it. And he looked at them and he said, in essence, he's like, you know, you're not my disciples. Yeah, when we all get to the feast in heaven, you know, do you know you won't be there? Because the heart and the natural outcome of those who follow me looks nothing like this. It looks like this. You cannot put others first in authority, affection, and governance and be my disciple. That's not logical. You cannot reject the ramifications of the cross. If I become a Christ follower, then that means I have to surrender this part of my life. Right. I mean, you, you cannot bar the door of the cross coming into your life and be my disciple. That's not logical. You cannot hold back certain aspects of your life that you want to hold back and be my disciple. That's not logical. 
It's not about being legalistic. It's about, it's really a path of logic that Jesus is taking them and through the scriptures us down. And this is how I define it. And if you don't define it that way, well, then you, you, you can't be my disciple. I mean, it wouldn't make sense to think of yourself in that way. Christ has not looked for, for perfection. That, the Pharisees had that. They were, they were closer in that than we'll ever be. He looks for the passionate pursuit of his heart. When my mind goes here, I capture it and I set it on things above. When my heart drifts into these affections, I capture it and I set it on heavenly things. When I, when I stumble and I become arrogant, very self-interested, when the Holy Spirit convicts me of that, I, I humble myself. I step back. I want to. Because that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Before I uh, teach these things, I always take what I'm thinking and run it through our, our, some of our staff. And you should thank them because they have spared you from some really bad ideas over the years. Like you really, somebody, everybody should just give Ezra a hug for stopping me, right? And so I, I did that this week and, and so talked about it and they were like, yep, Jeff, that's in line with scripture and I think what Jesus would want us to say and do. And then one of them raised this question. They said, how do you know you're doing that, right? Because if we're not careful, we can walk out and be like, man, how do I know? Because I messed up and so maybe I'm not a disciple. And, and, and a teaching like this, which is the words of Jesus, not the words of Jeff, that's important. But if we're not careful, it can almost like produce this insecurity in us kind of a thing. So how, how can you ever know? And as we were talking about that, I, I said to them, I said, if you're unsure what to do, what you should do is listen to the last three weeks of conversations. Because what we talked about, what Jesus was talking about at the dinner, was he was talking about the characteristics of a disciple. My disciples make decisions like this instead of decisions like that. My disciples, they wanna put themselves in positions like this and not positions like that. My disciples see other people like this, not like that. And it's not like they do it, they do it perfectly because that's ridiculous. Then we wouldn't need Jesus. We wouldn't need his grace. We wouldn't need his forgiveness. If we could do it perfectly, we could be self-righteous. We could make ourselves righteous. So it's not about perfection, it's about pursuit. When a disciple sees it, catches it, understands it, is confronted with it, we go to our discipleship. We put Jesus in his place, we pick up our cross, we surrender our lives, and we go there. And Jesus is not calling for a perfect execution of a list of rules. He's pressing to the heart and he's not even wagging his finger at these, at these folks at this luncheon. He's just kind of asking the question. Like, well, this is this, it's not that. What do you think about yourself? If you were running the math, would you see these things in your life? Could you, should you see them maybe more, right? 
is, it, is your definition and my definition the same? If it's not, it's a big conversation. If it is, it's a lifelong pursuit. We never, we never nail it. We pursue it. And believing the one that God sent, putting our faith in Christ, is actually what God wants for, for his people, okay? All right. Band's gonna come out. Why don't you pray with me as they settle in. Jesus, this is big and it's, it's helpful, I think. It's clarifying to know your mind on this. And you don't wrap it in a mystery. It's not this deep thing that we have to trust. You kind of lay it out clearly and explain it to us. And so thank you for that. God, help us to look inward. That's scary and tough and sometimes uncomfortable to do. I think, I think in many ways we'd rather just keep a list. But to love you, it, it's, it's hard to define love. And it, it's hard to understand relationship. And it's a pursuit and a growth and a depth. And it's not always easy to measure, but it's what you want. And so thank you that you offer it, that the table is set and the invitation is out and the food is ready. And God, help us to, to act on it. Push aside the temporal things and dive into the things that are close to your heart. Begin with me and move through all of us. Press into us through your Holy Spirit, even in these moments, Jesus, in your name.